Well, thank you, Jeremiah, for nailing all those names. That was impressive. Uh, we know, I don't know, some of you may know Jeremiah has some, uh, some theater background, and so we thought, yeah, he might be a good one to ask to read a passage that has some more uh, difficult uh, names. So thank you so much, Jeremiah, for doing that. Um, again, my name is Bill Gorman, and it's such a great privilege uh, to serve here at the Brookside campus, and one of my favorite things is to do uh, baby dedication. It's always such a great moment in the life of our, of our church family. When, as we prepare to look at this passage, which Jeremiah read for us, I'd love to just start with a word of prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, we are so thankful that, uh, that you have given us your word. Um, thanks be to God, truly, that you have given us your word. And we ask now that uh, as the, the, the Levites and, and the others helped people to understand the word that day, that your spirit would be active, helping us to understand your word uh, this day um, as we open it. And uh, we pray that it would transform our lives, um, which is only possible by the power of your spirit. So we ask that he would be active working this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to start by asking a question this morning, and that is just simply, are you happy? Uh, As you sit in your pew here at the Brookside campus, um, are you happy? And uh, and what is happiness? And what does it take for for us, for you, to be happy? Um, I mean, one could argue that almost everything we do is motivated by a a pursuit of happiness, of, of getting more happiness, of of becoming not sad and moving to a place of happiness. And and as we kind of question and ponder uh, what happiness is, I want us to begin by looking at one man's definition of happiness. Um, Don Draper of Mad Men, that fictional advertising guru of the 1960s. And in the following scene we're going to watch in just a moment, he's trying to convince a particular company, the Dow Corning Company, that they need him, Don, and his advertising agency in order to be truly successful. And in this clip, he appeals to that pursuit for happiness, that insatiable hunger for more. So, so what is happiness? Let's watch. I want to talk about your business. What about it? See, I've been looking at what you're doing, and I think you're in desperate need of change. And you're just the guy to do it. I am. We're at 50% market share in almost everything we make. Because you have a big line of diverse and charismatic products, and you keep making more. Zip tape, styrofoam, Ravana. And why do you do that? Because even though success is a reality, its effects are temporary. You get hungry even though you've just eaten. At the old firm, we had London Fog raincoats. We had a year where we sold 81% of the raincoats in the United States. Name another raincoat. But we didn't stop working for them because 81% isn't enough. But it doesn't change the fact that we're happy with our agency. Are you? You're happy with 50%. You're on top and you don't have enough. You're happy because you're successful for now. But what is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. I won't settle for 50% of anything. I want 100%. You're happy with your agency? You're not happy with anything. You don't want most of it. You want all of it. And I won't stop until you get all of it. Thank you for your time. Did you catch that in there? Even though success is a reality, its effects are temporary. You get hungry even though you've just eaten. And then he says, what is happiness? It's the moment before you realize you need more happiness. 
What is happiness? The moment before you realize you need more happiness. I remember when I was watching that for the first time, I think I actually paused the TV and just kind of sat there for a minute, sort of taking in um, the reality of what, what Don says in that scene and, and how right on that is. I mean, I think that's exactly how it works, doesn't it? I mean, I feel that reality all the time of happiness is, yeah, it's that moment right before I realize I got to go out and get more or find more and it's gone. And some of you uh, know, uh, I've shared this in the past, some of you know that I have a large uh, collection of Star Wars action figures in my basement. Uh, they live in a giant Rubbermaid tub, and uh, down there, probably much to Rachel's chagrin, I think she'd be happy if I got rid of all of them. Um, but how did I get this big tub full of Star Wars action figures? Well, well as a kid, um, I would save up my money, and I would go to the Target and the Kmart nearby. I actually knew the days when the shipments of new action figures would come in. And I would search for these figures. And, and I would buy one, and I would bring it home, and I'd be excited for like a day. And then I would be bored, and it, it never kind of delivered. And then it would be the quest to find the next one that was always out of stock. And, and then I'd find it, and I'd get it, and then... I needed another one. And so now I have still, at 30, almost 31 years old, I still have this giant tub of action figures in my basement that I accumulated all because happiness is that moment that you have right before you realize you need more happiness. And it's, it's always disappointing, right? I mean, children, students, you, you know this, but it's not just kids with, with toys, right? I mean, Rachel and I just got back from almost two weeks of vacation, and, and I caught myself this week already longing for the next vacation, which I think actually always happens that week after because you're like, man, there's a lot of stuff to catch up on. Um, vacation was a lot easier. Or have you ever fallen into that sort of, I call it the, the when I finally trap? You know, when I finally graduate from high school or when I finally get married or when I finally pay off that credit card debt or, or when I finally have kids or when I finally get the right job or when my kids finally stop fighting with one another all the time. Then, then I'll be happy, whatever that is. I mean, you can fill in the blank. When I finally, whatever, then I'll be happy. But there's got to be a better way, right? I mean, there's something more lasting, something real, something that isn't so fickle and fleeting. And what about joy? I mean, joy is a little different, isn't it? I mean, there's certainly some overlap between joy and happiness, but there's something unique about joy, G.K. Chesterton, a British author at the turn of the 19th century, wrote once that joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And if there's one thing that I'd love for us to take away, the one thing that we're going to see this morning in this text of Nehemiah chapter 8, it's this, that joy changes everything. Joy changes everything. And now this year, we've been going through the whole Bible with Open Here, this Bible reading plan. We've just kind of been marching through the scriptures together. And this week actually marks the end of the historical books. And we're beginning already to read through the poetry uh, books of, of Job's and Psalms and Proverbs. And uh, as we look into those books, we're going to be doing something um, great and, and changing kind of the genre of literature that we're looking at. But we deliberately slowed down in the book of Nehemiah and spent four weeks here to really hone in. And this morning where we look in Nehemiah chapter 8, we find that after a hundred years of rubble gazing, the people turn to wall building. 
and Nehemiah leads them, and the wall protecting Jerusalem is rebuilt in 52 days. And Kevin talked a little bit about that last week. This is an incredible work of God that this thing that has been, they've been looking at for 100 years, doing nothing about, is finally accomplished in 52 days. And God sent Nehemiah to restore the walls, but God had more in mind than just walls. God ends up using Nehemiah to restore the weak and the oppressed within their community. If you remember from last week, restored people restore others. But God isn't done with Nehemiah yet. And nor is he done with his people either. Their hearts still need restoring. And God will do it. And he will do it through massive, life-altering, guilt and shame-releasing joy. See, joy changes everything. So as we look at Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning, we're going to ask three questions. Where do we get joy? What do we do with joy? And then last, what does joy do with us? So where do we get it? What do we do with it? And what does it do to us? So first, where do we get joy? Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 says this, And all the people were gathered as one man, as one person, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the law of Moses. So this mass of people, all God's people, are gathered together like one person in unity at the water gate on the wall that they've just built. And Ezra, who's a scribe, he's a priest, he's a religious leader, stands before them. And, and actually, if you, just one book behind Nehemiah is the book of Ezra. That's all about this guy, Ezra, who's standing up there right now. And the people ask Ezra to read them the law, probably the book of Deuteronomy. And he does. And the whole group of people, all of God's people who are in Jerusalem are gathered there. Men and women, young and old, anyone who could stand and understand the word. Like us in this room, there children and students uh, were included in that. And they listened from the early morning all the way to the midday. And I mean, you thought my sermons got long sometimes. I mean, this is just them reading the Bible from morning until midday. But they didn't just read the Bible. They also did what we try to do here every morning. Look at verse 7. It says, The Levites helped the people to understand the law, and they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people could understand the reading. I mean, that's why we take time each week not only just to read the text of Scripture, but to have sermons and messages and, and Bible studies so that we can understand God's Word. So how do God's people respond when they hear God's law? Do they respond with joy? I mean, we said this message is going to be about joy, right? But they don't, not at first. They respond with weeping. They understand how undeserving they were. When they hear God's law being read, they realize all the laws that they've broken and how they've rejected God, and they weep. But listen to what Nehemiah and Ezra tell the people. This is in verse 9. He says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. And he says, Do not mourn or weep. And then at the end of verse 10, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What a gift. I mean, the people were right to weep over their sins, 
But God says, no, not now. I want you to celebrate in this moment. Find your strength by finding joy in me. Because you see, the seventh month, which we read earlier in the text there, the seventh month of the year was the most special month in the Jewish calendar. It was the month of the Festival of Booths. It was the month of the Day of Atonement. And the first day of the seventh month marked the new year. This is basically their New Year's Eve celebration. And in fact, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, it tells us that that first day was to be a special day of rest and worship. This was not the day to weep and mourn. I mean, there's a time to do that, but this wasn't the day. It was almost like, I was trying to think, how could I imagine this in our context? It's almost like they were trying to commemorate Good Friday on Easter morning. It's like, this is not the day for mourning and weeping. This is a day for celebration. I love that. And so where do we get joy? Joy is ultimately, it's a gift from God. And you can't buy joy. You can't even really try to work joy up. Joy happens when God gives it to us. And it's in joy that we find, rather it's in in God that we find joy. It's in him that we ultimately find what we're looking for. You see, neither their circumstances, the rebuilt walls, um, that wasn't what brought them joy. I mean, they're weeping. It's the joy that comes when it's centered on him and centered in him. And anything less is ultimately fleeting and unsatisfying. I love how Pastor John Piper puts this in his book, God is the Gospel. He says, if the enjoyment of God himself is not the final and best gift of love, then God is not the greatest treasure His self-giving is not the highest mercy. The gospel is not the good news that sinners may enjoy their maker. Christ did not suffer to bring us to God, and our souls must look beyond him for satisfaction. You see, the highest goal of the gospel is that we would enjoy being in God's presence. Now, joy doesn't mean that all of us are going to be bubbling over and glowing all the time. No, joy, the text says, is strength from God. It is a commitment to view our lives and our circumstances from his perspective. It is a resolute trust that whatever happens, God who loves me is still good and is still in control. You see, Dallas Willard, the brilliant uh, Christian thinker and philosopher who passed away this Wednesday, he defined joy as a pervasive sense of well-being. A pervasive sense of well-being. All those other things we run into to give us moments of happiness. It's not that they're bad things. They're just not ultimate things. I I love what uh, C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist and became one of the most influential Christians in the 1900s, he writes, What does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. Let me say that again. He says, What does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. Do you follow that? You see, the reason that happiness is fleeting with all of those other things is that those things aren't really what we were looking for in the first place. I wasn't really looking for that Luke Skywalker action figure. I wasn't really deep down what I wanted. I thought it was. The reason those things, even good things, don't offer lasting happiness is we're desperate for is what we can never find is, is we, we're desperate for to find it we can't ever find in anything less than God 
you know, we don't really want money. What we, we wanted was security. We didn't really want sex. We wanted intimacy. We didn't really ultimately want approval. We wanted significance to know that we're loved. We didn't really want that new toy. We wanted satisfaction. You see, ultimate security, intimacy, significance, and satisfaction, those things can only be found in the God who made us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So joy is a gift from God, but but how do we get that gift? I mean, I just said a moment ago, it's not sort of like we can work ourselves up into this frenzy of joy. So how how do we get joy? Well, ultimately, we get it by pursuing God not joy. So how easily it is to make that mistake. I make this all the time. I pursue happiness jumping from one disappointment to another. But if you live your life in pursuit of joy, you won't get joy. But if you live your life in the pursuit of God, you'll end up with both. So if you want joy, pursue God. It's the difference between first and second things. If you put second things first, you don't get second things nor first things. But if you put first things first, Not only do you get first things, you also get second things as well. If you want more joy, seek God. That's what the Israelites did here in this text, right? I mean, they read God's word. They pursued it. They listened to it. They sought to understand. They built their life upon it. And as we do that, as we desire to understand God, as he's revealed himself in his word, we will begin to find ourselves finding joy in him. And remind yourself of this often. When I feel the urge to pursue those things that are just happiness, I, I, I have to remember and remind myself of what really matters. Um, Paul Tripp in his book, uh, Dangerous Calling, says that, that you, know, you are ultimately the most influential person in your life because you are the one who talks to yourself most often. So what are you telling yourself And I have to tell myself in the pursuit of happiness, Bill, remember this thing isn't going to do it. It's a good thing. Enjoy it. But don't ask it to give you only what only God can truly give you. I mean, God has given us so many good things to enjoy. But it's only when we can enjoy them as gifts from him that we can truly enjoy them at all. Ask God to give you what only he can give you. Ask him for his joy. This is God's gift to his people. And it, what's, it is what unfolds in this story as a result of their joy is, is actually a revival, a spiritual awakening. And ask God to do that for you, to do for us what he did for them. Because when joy comes, joy changes everything. So what do we do with joy? Where do we get joy? We get joy from God. But what do we do with joy? When we look at the text, what do they do with joy? They celebrate. What do we do with joy? Ultimately, we rejoice. We celebrate. If you look at verse 10, the text says, And they said to, and he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to everyone who has nothing. And for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And all the people went away to eat and drink and to send out portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them.
Nehemiah tells them to, to wipe away their tears from their eyes and to kill the fat and the calf, to eat the choicest cuts. I love that. He says, eat the fat. Eat the fat. Open the bottles of the finest wine. Share with anyone who doesn't have any enough and party. And this party actually lasts for seven days of celebration and rejoicing. And so joy leads us to celebrate. James Houston, who's at Regent College in Vancouver, he writes, for Christians who live closely with God, life is like a festival. For Christians who live closely with God, life is like a festival. And there are so many joyless Christians. I remember so clearly when the gospel really began to grab hold of me as a high school student. The shift in my mind, and I remember articulating it to a number of friends as a kind of a junior or senior in high school, is that I said, when the gospel really began to come alive for me, I realized the difference was not only that Christianity was sort of the best way to live or the way that I ought to live, but it was the most fun, joy-filled way to live. When the gospel really grabs your heart, that's the, it moves from something that, that maybe is the right thing or, or, or the best thing to the most joyful thing. Some of us just need to get over ourselves and be able to celebrate and to party. To not be obsessed with all of the things that have gone wrong and to bask in God's grace. I mean, look at what God has done for us. Look at what he has done for you. I mean, he's crossed heaven and earth to be with us. He has defeated death and sin and everything that is evil. He rebuilt their walls. He restored their hearts. And if you are a joyless Christian, and and I know, I mean, in a room this size with a number of us here, there's got to be some of us who have been walking with Christ for a while and we just don't feel joy anymore. And, And maybe you don't know who you are, but I bet the people in your life know who you are. And if that's you, ask yourself again, have I really met the giver of all joy, the creator of beautiful things, the redeemer of all of our hopes? I love what author Gary Thomas says. He writes, if we had a little more joy in our churches today, we might have a lot more strength. If we had a little more joy in our churches, we might have a lot more strength. Of course, there is a place for weeping and repentance and sobriety, but clearly at times such responses come up short. Sometimes call for celebration, for rejoicing, for dancing, for singing, for feasting, laughing, and playing. And this is why I love weddings. I mean, not only is it fun to to go to weddings, I get to do weddings and celebrate weddings, they're just a great chance to rejoice and to celebrate and to dance. And after a, rec- a wedding I recently did and, uh, and attended, I had someone um, come up to me who had been at the reception uh, at church the next day, and they said, you know, it was so good to see a pastor. It was almost like they were shocked. It was so good to see a pastor on the dance floor having a good time with his wife. And uh, now she was definitely commenting on the fact that I was rejoicing and celebrating and having a good time, not on the dance skills, because I don't have any of those but you don't have to in order to celebrate. But you see, that's the stereotype so often, I think not only of, of pastors, um, but of Christians in general, that we are kind of joyless naysayers. But in reality, we should be ready to lead the conga line, right, in the moments of celebration. God has given us so much to celebrate, to enjoy. Do we enjoy it? So what do we do with joy? 
we celebrate. Celebrate every chance you get. If you are in Christ, you are redeemed. You are the restored. You have met him. Remember him. You remember, actually, Jesus was the guy who was kind of constantly being too much of a partier. He was always at these people's houses and the kind of the religious establishment, they didn't like it. Celebrate. And again, it isn't just joy, it's the joy of the Lord. It isn't just celebrating for celebration's sake. It's, it's celebrating God and his gifts. Celebration is actually a spiritual discipline. In, in Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, one of the disciplines that he talks about is the discipline of celebration. Sometimes we actually have to work to make space in our lives to celebrate. And to celebrate God in particular. And celebrate him every chance that you get. I mean, t- today we're celebrating Mother's Day. Where would we be without our moms? Celebrate milestones of, of, of baby dedications, baptisms, and weddings, and anniversaries, and birthdays. Celebrate answered prayer and God's daily faithfulness in your life. And make a big deal out of it. Don't be afraid to, to go to a nice restaurant or to have a bunch of people over. Make margin in your life with time and money to be able to celebrate. Let your family and your neighbors see you celebrate and let them know why. Let them say, let them know why you're having this party to say, look at what God has done for me. Look at what he has done for us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And the great part, the more that we celebrate God, the more we experience him and experience joy. So joy is a gift. What do we do with joy? We celebrate. But what does joy do with us? Look again. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I hear, when we hear that word strength, I think at least my first reading of that, oh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That means that joy makes me strong. It gives me kind of the energy, the power I need to do what God has called me to do. And there there probably is a sense of that, but actually the Hebrew word that's translated strength here is actually translated everywhere else in the Bible as fortress or refuge or protection. I love that. You see, the joy of the Lord, you could translate, is our fortress, it's our refuge, it's our home, our safety. Not the walls of Jerusalem, not our health, our bank accounts. The joy gives us our security. And it is this security that changes everything, changes us. So what does joy do with us? Joy does three things with us. First, joy in the Lord provides us our security. It makes us feel safe and content. I mean, this kind of, the picture you could almost imagine, it's, it's the what calms a child's fear more than anything, right? It's a loving parent holding them. When we feel, feel secure in God, we feel more joy. And what ultimately do we have to fear if, if he is our security? Who do we have to impress? What do we have to pursue that's not already promised to us in Christ? So where do we find our joy? Where do you find your security? So joy provides us our security. But second, this joy, this security fuels repentance. Chapter 8 is really sort of the climactic point of the book of Nehemiah. And everything else is sort of a response to this high point in the book. 
And we see this restoration worked out practically in the chapters that follow. In chapter 9, for instance, the two weeks after their seven-day party festival, they do put on sackcloth. And they stood and confessed, it says, their sins and the iniquities of their father. There is a time for repentance. And in chapter 9, there's this lengthy prayer of confession, and it goes on and on and on. There is a place for weeping. But when we find our joy in the Lord, our weeping over our sin isn't one of despair. We weep with hope. And joy makes the temptation to sin seem so hollow. Why would I want to devote my life to such cheap substitutes when infinite joy is offered to us? And you see, the moment we repent, we actually become more confident in Christ that we are forgiven and restored. And then the more that we feel joy, it's the cycle of, of repentance leading to joy, which leads to more repentance, which leads to more joy. When you realize the depth of your sin and then you recognize that God still loves you, it frees you in so many ways. So do you repent with joyful expectation of forgiveness? And third, the more joy, the more our loves get reordered. Joy really does change everything. In chapter 10 of Nehemiah, if you want to maybe even take some time and read that, if you haven't, is overwhelming. You see the practical effects of joy. Their commitment to the house of God. Over and over again, we see this dedication to the house of God, the temple that they have constructed, and this outpouring of generosity. In chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 35, we read, We, the people, obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of the ground, the first fruits of all the fruit of the tree, year by year to the house of the Lord, and also to bring to the house of the God, to the priests who minister in the house of the Lord, the firstborn of our sons, of our cattle, as it is written in the book of the law, the first of our herds and of our flocks. And it just goes on and on and on. They obligate themselves above and beyond to be generous the first of their dough and their contributions and their fruit and their wine and the oil, a tenth of everything. And it builds at the end of verse 39, and it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. And and these people, this group of people, they had almost nothing because of the famine that we talked about last week and oppression. They were people who had almost seemed like had been forgotten by God as their city lay in ruins for a century. And now these people have been restored. The wall has been rebuilt. The oppression has been lifted. And they can't help but celebrate by giving generously. You see, joy reorders our loves. It allows us not to live for stuff or for leisure any longer or for our self-made security or for any of these sort of little bite-sized attempts at happiness. We know better now that God is our security. He is the one who satisfies our desires better than we could. And have you ever known a really generous person Have you ever gotten the privilege to know someone who's just really generous with their time or their money or affection, their encouragement, maybe all of those things? And I have. I mean, I've been privileged to know so many. And and every truly generous person I've met, they are the happiest people. They truly are. Um, I wasn't even planning on on, on sharing this. I'll just think about this now. I'm I'm learning to preach off my iPad. The reason I have this iPad is someone— um, just walked up to me one day and just said, here, my wife and I wanted you to have this. Overwhelmed by this. I remember, and this is a couple years ago now. 
They're some of the happiest people I know. When we're generous, it truly leads to great joy. And if you've never been really generous, you you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. In fact, some of you are probably assuming you're just sort of saying this so that we'll all be a little bit more generous with the church here. But let me say this. Don't knock generosity until you've tried it. Someone great once said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That was Jesus. Um, he, He knows a thing or two about how life is supposed to work. And notice this. Their generosity wasn't without purpose. It was for the household of God, the center of their worship, the center for care of the poor and oppressed, the community, the advancement of God's kingdom. And we don't have a a temple today. I mean, we have buildings which we gather to worship, and we don't have the the temple. And yet the Apostle Paul Paul refers to in the New Testament the, the church the body of Christ as the household of God. And, and you do hear us say every week, if you come to Christ's community, right? It's, we don't pass an offering plate, but we do believe that giving is an important part of worship. Why do we say that? Is it just because, well, we've got to point it out and, and talking about it like worship really makes it sound a little better than we just want your money? We do say that because we do believe that giving is a vital part of the way that we worship God. Friends, be generous to your church. Why? Three quick reasons. One, it's what God tells us to do. It's what he um, tells us over and over to do in his word. Second, just imagine what God does in and through our world and our church community with our our collective resources of evangelism and church planting and community outreach and and feeding the poor and fighting oppression. I mean, there's all these things that the household of God, not just Christ's community, but the church around the world is able to do when his people are generous. And then three, do it for yourself, for your joy. See, we were designed, we're made in the image of God who is himself the most ultimately generous outpouring being in the universe and we're made to reflect him and when we do, we find such great joy. I mean, ultimately, uh, if you're not a generous person, I don't feel bad for the church. I mean, God provides generously for his church, but I feel bad for you. Because the work of restoration God is doing through his church, if, if you get to participate in that, there's just an incredible joy that comes there. Often at Christ Community, we say that giving is, is ultimately about, generosity is not about what we want, want from you, but what we want for you. And Christ Community is an incredibly generous church family. I'm continually amazed and challenged by the generosity of time and talent and treasure that I get to have kind of a front row seat of in our congregation. I almost feel bad sometimes when I'm together with other pastors and friends and I just get to share these stories of of you as a church family and your incredible generosity. You are an incredibly generous church family. Thank you. Thank you for being such an incredible model of sacrificial, joy-releasing generosity. So do you long for this? Do you long for this kind of joy? Do you want this in your life, in your home, in your family, in your church? 
Like Don Draper, I so often feel that happiness is merely that fleeting moment before you realize that you need more happiness. But ultimately, that's not how I want to live my life. I don't want to just sort of float from one series of whatever my current Star Wars action figure's obsession is. I want joy, lasting joy. I want that joy of the Lord to be my refuge, to be my strength. C.S. Lewis once said that joy is the serious business of heaven. But we don't have to wait until then to experience it. This joy begins now as we embrace Christ's life even here. It's why Jesus came, you know. Jesus said in John 15, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's why he came. Jesus purchased our joy with his blood, our offering us our life and his life for ours. And our joy is God's glory. Remember, the author of Hebrews says, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. You see, this book is about joy. Life is about joy. The church is about joy, deeper than mere happiness, more satisfying than mere pleasure, more lasting than mere leisure. And it's offered to us The question is, will we receive it? In communion, we get a foretaste of the joy that is the serious business of heaven that's set before us in Jesus. And we're reminded afresh of the joy, the pervasive sense of well-being that comes from knowing that we are loved and forgiven. And we celebrate communion uh, most most weeks here at the Brookside campus as a tangible reminder of the joy that is offered to us, of the good news of the gospel that our sins have been forgiven by the finished work of Christ on the cross, and by his glorious resurrection. In communion, the gospel is proclaimed to our senses. We are able to taste and touch and see and feel the good news of the gospel. And you don't have to be a member of Christ's community um, in order to take communion. If you were a follower of Jesus, then you are welcome at his table. And of course, if you would rather uh, remain in your seat, you're, you're welcome to do that. If you haven't yet understood what it means to follow Christ, if you're not sure where you're at, you're welcome to stay in your seat. And when you come, gather in groups of four to six around the table and take the bread and dip it in the juice and then partake together as a group. Um, There's four communion stations around the room. There's two in the front here and there's two in the back. Um, And this one in the back corner on this side uh, has gluten-free communion elements if, if that's something that you need. When you go to receive communion, it tends to work best if you exit through the side aisles here and then return to your seat through the center aisle. And uh, if you're newer here, you've probably noticed when you're sitting down that the pews are pretty narrow. Um, And if you have to kind of jostle by someone or as you're getting into or out of your seat today, it's okay. Um, We're used to that. It's, It's like family here, so just feel okay if you have to climb over someone a little bit. It's all right. And uh, as you come, take your time. Don't feel rushed. Enjoy this space in our service. Um, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, this is the new covenant 
and my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. As we come to the communion table or prepare to come, let me pray and then we'll come. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given your son that our joy might be full, that it might be complete. We rejoice in your sacrifice. For those of us who feel weighted down by the guilt of sin and shame, may that be released in the knowledge of the forgiveness and the love that Christ offers on the cross. Remind every one of us afresh of that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Amen. Come now to the Lord's table and taste and touch and see the good news of the forgiveness of sins.